15 minutes in Canberra. I'm Hayley Channer, Senior Policy Fellow with the Perth US Asia Centre. Today I am speaking with Dougal Robinson. Now, Dougal wouldn't tell you this himself, but he is an extremely impressive person with an exceptional knowledge of Australia-US relations. Dougal, we've been friends, but I didn't even know you were a Fulbright scholar, so you've kept that very quiet. And you've also lived and worked in Washington, D.C. You've spent time as a research fellow in the office of Republican Senator Marco Rubio. And also in a previous role, you're working for Perth US Asia Center's sister institute, which is the US Study Center in Sydney. Um, and in addition to that, you've also worked for DFAT. So you bring a huge wealth of experience from across Australian government agencies, as well as think tanks and the United States. And I'm so delighted to interview you. Thanks, Hayley. Thanks for the very generous introduction. <laughs> so not a lot of Australians would have had the opportunity to work in a US senator's office on Capitol Hill. Can you give us an idea of what that was like for anyone that aspires to do that in future? For sure. So I guess just to paint the picture, it was early 2014, January to April of that year. Um, President Obama had been re-elected in 2012 and everyone was leading up to the 2016 election. Um, at the time, Senator Rubio was one of the presumptive favourites for the Republican nomination. So I applied for this program through ANU. I was very excited to get the call that I'd got it. And they said, and we've placed you in the office of Senator Rubio. I said, oh, wow. Okay. That's, that's going to be interesting. <laughs> um, so it was, it was never directly said in the office, but it was very clear in the undertone that everything that Senator Rubio was doing, including on foreign policy, was informed by his desire to run for president in 2016. Mm. Um, I think probably the, the best, uh, you know, the most interesting time when I was there was a very challenging time for the international order was Russia's invasion of Crimea. Um, and that crisis and the debate was playing out within Washington at the time about whether the US would intervene, whether it would sanction Russia, what the appropriate policy was. And at the time, Senator Rubio, like many Republican presidential aspirates or Republican foreign policy uh, experts in general, he was very keen to paint President Obama as weak hmm. and as weak in standing up to Russia and to play to that Cold War, Cold Warrior mentality uh, that there is in, in parts of the Republican Party and parts of the United States. So, um, my task as a research fellow really was working for his chief foreign policy advisor, really just doing research notes and keeping them up to date with what was everybody saying about this? You know, not only what was the British prime minister or the German chancellor saying, but also what was Ted Cruz saying or what was Scott Walker saying? <laughs> um, or, or, you know, they were, they were very interested in, in tracking the moves of other Republicans <laughs> who were likely to run in that election, and then there was also the added angle of President of, of Senator Rubio being a senator from Florida uh, with Cuban background and the very strong Cuban community in Miami. Um, the the sort of bashing up on Russia uh, had a very strong air of playing to his base mm. um, of fiercely anti-communist Cuban emigres living as citizens in in Miami and in Florida. It's really amazing how much um, political officers, I think someone like myself who worked in a political office didn't realise, was that 
politicians need to be across every single development, especially now that we have 24-hour news and social media. If they're not across what other people in their party are saying, um, let alone, you know, people from across the aisle or in other in other countries, they're really seen as being behind in foreign policy issues and that's what they need advisors for is to provide them with that current advice. Something that you said also um, has made me think of another issue, which is just keeping US attention to the Indo-Pacific region because when you're in the US, the focus was on Russia with the Crimea issue. Now the US is also pulling its troops out of the Middle East. They're probably almost all gone. On, um, in a week or so. But um, in terms of keeping US attention to the Indo-Pacific region and the challenges that we face here, do you think that there's something that the US expects of Australia as an ally or just expects generally um, from other US allies in the region here? I think the first thing I'd say is that in terms of keeping US attention on the Indo-Pacific, China's increasingly assertive behaviour is the primary driver of that. So anything that, that allies do can, can complement, can help, can inform US policy. But ultimately, the trajectory of China's power and its behavior is uh, informing a growing bipartisan consensus in the United States on the importance of the Indo-Pacific. Uh, and, and a commensurate, if perhaps a little slow, prioritization of resources away from other theatres and towards the Indo-Pacific. Um, in terms of what allies can do, I think we as Australia bring very deep expertise on uh, the Pacific and on Southeast Asia in particular, which are, are parts of the Indo-Pacific that are typically not uh, as front of mind for the United States, although you know their State Department senior figures like DepSec Wendy Sherman have recently been to the region, I think Australia can play a very, very constructive role in shaping US policy broadly towards the region, but specifically in those parts which are fundamentally important to Australia and perhaps slightly less important to the United mm. States. This is actually a question I've been wondering about personally for a while. You mentioned that Australia can provide the United States with expertise and analysis on Southeast Asia and the Pacific, countries that we're closest to. But for decades, Australia has been more interested in great power politics. It's been more interested in the United States, in the UK, and now it's interested in China. You've worked for DFAT before. Do you think that um, there's a way Australia can beef up its Southeast Asia and Pacific expertise, or do you think that Australia is already doing a fair amount in that area and that we're pretty well covered? I think in the period of this government, there's been a relative prioritisation of Australia's uh, military forces, our diplomatic weight and our aid budget, the sort of three key prongs of our international policy away from other areas and towards the Indo-Pacific and specifically towards Southeast Asia um, and the Southwest Pacific. So I think there has been a notable shift uh, in the past decade or so. Um, there's probably more to go, but uh, it, it's it's well underway. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, I accept your point that we've been focused on China or the US, etc., but that competition is really playing out in our near region and in Southeast Asia. So we need to bolster our understanding, not just of China or just of Indonesia, but how that is playing out mm. in the region itself. 
Now that we have President Biden in the White House and Trump is hopefully a more distant memory, I'd be really interested to know your view on what do you think Trump's legacy has been um, in terms of Australia-US relations and has there been a lasting impact on the alliance because of Trump? I think the Australian people and the Australian government were very quick to differentiate between Donald Trump, the United States government as a whole, and the United States as a whole, uh, and that's something that's that's only continued. But equally, the the foreign policy white paper, which I think was published in 2017, was, I think, right in assessing that uh, the conditions were there for the US to perhaps play a less active role in the world, and that uh, Trump had probably supercharged some of those underlying feelings uh, among the electorate in the United States, which previously hadn't risen to or had a champion in high office. Um, so I think there's a, there's a, although Biden is, is in some ways a return to the status quo, what does the next Republican administration look like? Um, it looks like the Republican Party is increasingly the party of Trump, even though he was a one-term president. And so it'll be very interesting to see into 2024, 2028, who the Republican Party nominates and whether their foreign policy platform is in the Trump vein or closer to a traditional, more traditional Republican mm. foreign policy position before Trump uh, ascended to, to, to being president. Is there any chance that um, one of Donald Trump's family members like Ivanka or one of his sons could ever run for president or that Trump would support that? Look, it's hard to say anything's not possible. <laughs> um, and going back to going back to you know when I was in Senator Rubio's office in 2014, we were closer to the the 2016 election then than we are now to the 2024 mm. election. Um, and the idea that Donald Trump might be a candidate back then was either a joke or not even discussed. Mm. Um, and look how that turned out. So it's hard to, I, I think we should be careful in being You're too, not pre make predictions. too, too, too <laughs> prescriptive. Um, but look, there, there are also credible media reports that, that, uh, several of his children have, political ambitions and whether they play out, uh, you know, with a run towards the White House or for a, for a Senate office or a, or a gubernatorial office uh, will be watched by mm. US watchers with keen interest. Mm. Dougal, now many aspiring foreign affairs specialists would be very envious of the amazing career you've had in terms of um, working in the US, working within the Australian government and also producing reports for think tanks. I'm wondering if you can reflect on the different roles that you've had and maybe talk about one of the things that's been quite eye-opening or challenging for you that you didn't realise coming into the foreign affairs and security policy field that could help other people. I think the main thing I would say based on my career path so far of being in and out of government as well as in think tanks and a master's student in the US is the, the benefits of looking at problems from different angles. Um, and so uh, perhaps many of your audience are current undergraduates. I would really urge people to 
go out and get as much experience as you can, whether it's at a think tank or as a researcher for a professor at a university or working as a journalist or, um, you know, spending time on a fellowship overseas post-COVID, if that's possible, um, you know, applying for government jobs, really cast the net wide because having a different range of experience is is ultimately very helpful. Mm. Um, I, I think the other thing I would say is that with China's rise and its economic growth over the past several decades as the fundamental sort of underpinning of China's power and some of China's more coercive behaviour towards Australia and other countries, don't discount the importance of economics mm. in your studies because government work on you know international relations or security is now increasingly intertwined with economics mm. in, in a way that it wasn't in our parents' generation. Mm, 100%. Jiggle, we've come to the end, and my favourite question for all my guests is a funny story or something weird that's happened to them in the course of their career. Do you have a story like that you would like to share? Sure. So to, <laughs> to, to go back to the, the US Senate time, um, I was working for Jamie Fly, Senator Rubio's chief foreign policy advisor, and he kept saying to me, oh, I'll bring you to a meeting of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And I thought, oh, this sounds great. This sounds great. Maybe it's just my really senior boss, you know, humoring a 23-year-old. And then one day he dropped in and he said, oh, let's go to the meeting. It's on in 15 minutes. So we walked, you know, there was sort of... So this is like something out of West Wing, basically. It, it really felt like something <laughs> out of West Wing. You know, <laughs> he and I were walking behind Senator Rubio. Senator Rubio walks into the room. There's 10 or 12 US senators around the table. This was at a time of very high partisan distrust uh, within the US Congress after the, the government shutdowns of 2013 and the, the rise of the Tea Party movement, etc. So we were all the sort of staffers. I don't know if I'd call myself that, but uh, anyone who wasn't a senator was sitting around the outside of the room and the meeting started and Dick Durbin who of Illinois, who I think was the number two uh, Senate Democrat at the time, uh, a fierce supporter of, of, of President Obama, said, now, look, senators, we're here. We've got 30 US ambassadorships overseas where the candidate has been nominated but not yet passed through the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Canada, for example. I mean, who here wouldn't think Canada's an important relationship and yet we've had no US ambassador for a year and a half mm. because the Republicans on the committee were very disappointed with the tactics that the Democrats under Harry Reid had used on government shutdowns and all sorts of domestic business. And Durbin made a direct appeal to Senator John McCain and said, look, Senator McCain, you're as you know proud about U.S. power overseas as anyone else. Can't we just put all this behind us and and nominate these uncontroversial, um, you know, confirm these uncontroversial uh, U.S. ambassadorial picks? And John McCain stood up at the table and started banging his hand with his ring on the table like something like a Frank Underwood scene. <laughs> And he said, Senator Durbin, we've been great friends in this chamber for 20 years. And I, like anyone else, think US power overseas is incredibly important. But there's nothing more important than my rights as a US senator. And you and your Democratic friends trampled all over my rights. And so until you undo this and this and this, there is no way 
these nominations are passing through this committee. And he stormed out. And he just stormed out. And I'd heard and read about McCain's tantrum and everybody's face in the room, Republican and Democrat, was just jaw-dropped. And the meeting kind of continued. And then <laughs> on the way out, I said to my my boss, you know, is that normal? He said, I have never seen anything like that working in Republican politics wow. for, for 20 years. So that was my one time I attended the US wow. Senate Foreign Relations Committee. What a meeting and, to attend. And it was... Uh, I'll never forget it. Yeah. And now we've got um, a Kennedy coming to become uh, Australia's next ambassador um, for the United States. So that will be very interesting. Dougal, thank you so much for sharing all of your um, experience and knowledge about this field that we work in. It's been really interesting. And um, I'm so glad that we've got you within an Australian government agency to help promote our foreign policies. Thanks so much, Hayley. Really appreciate it.